Hello and welcome to the Simply podcast. I'm Patrick Corbett, Director of Communications and Content at Simply. And today I'm joined by Isabel Collins, Culture and Belonging Consultant with a particular emphasis on trust. Today we'll be talking about the employer-employee relationship and how to build a culture of trust within an organisation. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi Isabel, thank you ever so much for uh, being interviewed today. Um, can we start off by asking uh, you to introduce yourself and a bit about um, what you do? Thank you. Hello Patrick and thank you very much for interviewing me. It's nice to meet the Simply Communicate world. Um, I'm Isabel Collins, I'm a specialist in culture and creating a sense of belonging. Um, I've done it for quite a long time and of course now creating a sense of belonging is quite useful for <laughs> for many companies for different reasons because the nature of our world. I've worked within very large organisations, global businesses like BP or Rolls-Royce, um, and I've worked in particular strands of culture like values or safety or ethics. Um, I've worked with culture and leadership. I've worked with many boards like with uh, the Network Rail Leadership um, and Culture Programme. Uh, I've worked with uh, the third sector as well, people like the Royal Society for Chemistry and the Royal College of Physicians. So I kind of pop up in lots of realms how to make culture healthy. You've also just uh, you've also just reeled off about five companies we work really closely with, or either within simply community membership or recently mm -hmm. been running events. So the RSC were there speaking uh, in Brilliant. Place, yeah, as was Network Rail, they're also members. We have uh, Rolls Royce around mem uh, valued fellow East Midlands uh, members, uh, yeah, based out in Derby. Um, and yeah, so uh, it's really nice to hear you reel off some of those brands. So so culture and belonging, uh, Isabel, and trust, I know you're going to talk about. What does that look like in a disparate age that we're in now? What does it look like in 2023? It is very interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's not that we don't have trust. It's just that we've had to learn different ways of doing it. And I think we haven't entirely learned the things that are valuable for holding trust well together. It's interesting, just before we went into the pandemic, I, I think a few months before, there was a play at Hampstead Theatre down the road from where I live in Northwest London um, called The Haystack. But there was a lovely line in it, quite a young person saying, we live in the most connected age ever. I can digitally connect with people all around the world. I've got the facility to do so many things that get me everywhere. And yet I feel lonelier than I think I ever expected to feel. So there's a kind of dilemma. So I'd like to take back a little bit about, first of all, culture. Culture is very easy for people to sort of throw stuff out. So oh, it's all about this. It's all about that. But to forget that what culture isn't is static and also what it isn't is amorphous and shapeless. It becomes real and manifest to us because think of culture almost like the Petri dish or your garden. What do we cultivate in? So culture is your environment for growth. What is going to help you grow? And that's a whole ecosystem. It's not just any one thing. It's not like you can say, well, we've got our values now. That's it. That's our culture because the gulf between what we're saying, our values are bar, 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 and sort of bored by the third one. Yeah. Okay. So what am I feeling? What am I receiving? What is actually happening? How am I being supported? How am I being enabled? So culture is all the things in an organisation <clears throat> that create those interactions, that create the symbols, that create the attitudes and habits that are how you nurture growth or not. 
it's quite a lot of cultures like badly tended gardens stop growth. So the first thing is it's complicated and there's lots of things in there. So finding the right bits to change, that's often the art of it. And then trust, I think, it's very easy to take for granted that trust is a kind of one way thing or given thing. And the best person I've seen speaking on this is Baroness Onora O'Neill, who is a philosopher. She's all over YouTube. You can see her on TED Talks and British Scientific Society Talks. She says what matters is trustworthiness. Is this person worthy of my trust? How am I assessing whether this person is worthy of my trust? And those are assessments that many public figures perhaps ought to be a little bit more conscious of. So the formula that people often talk about with trust is that it's about dependability. I know I can depend that this thing will happen. Uh, your credibility. Are you believable? Are you do you deliver on what you promise? And then the intimacy, the level of proximity that we feel and contact we feel. And then all of that is multiplied by each other. So if any one of them is not very high, you don't get a good score overall. You need all of them. And then divided by self-orientation. So someone who is heavily self-oriented, self-interested, will by nature divide the amount of trustworthiness that they might have. I know that's a bit complicated, but the critical thing that's changed in these last few years is our intimacy, our possibility of having that direct contact. And where I think trust and connectedness has really been eroded is the apparently banal it's the the interactions as you bump in and out of the lift or, you know, you're making your coffee or maybe in sort of creative and communications agency world. It's that, you know, quick Friday beer after work. And suddenly that doesn't happen. And I think that became clear in its absence or its importance. It's not that you can't create that level of trust and trustworthiness or that functional culture via a connected online existence. It's that you have to make sure you're working very hard at enabling a sense of human proximity and human interaction and human intimacy, not in a bad way. Mm. In, a, in a, you know, I kind of know who you are. I feel comfortable with you. Um, in order to then be able to charge on and get on with all the things that are very urgent for people. That's the, the, the background, that's the glue, that's what holds us. Sorry, long but answer. The, the, the coffee side, the coffee side chats, uh, you know, the, the kind of ta the table, you know, during lunch break. I guess you missed that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip a bit, uh, quite a bit into this interview. Go straight into Gen Z and and the future <laughs> of the workforce. So okay, it's just because that, that that point you've made there about um, the importance of face to face interaction, and obviously mm. Gen Z mm. have been brought up, uh, you know, the internet. Even when I was born, I know I look young, did not exist. Um, or at least not in its current iteration. Um, and Gen Z now are just more, more accustomed to digitally interacting with friends, with colleagues. You know, um, I was speaking to someone last week and her daughter was going off to San Francisco to meet her gaming community who she'd never physically met before. But yeah. they are pretty much best friends. So you've got that where they're a bit more accustomed to digital relationships mm. within a workplace. But at the same time, there's multiple reports saying that Gen Z are the ones asking to get in the office a bit more because it's going to help with their career career progression. They can learn skills a bit faster. You know, you don't have to awkwardly sit and Google apps how to do something when someone next to you who's done it before can show you in 10 minutes. So 
where does Gen Z and more importantly, the generation that comes after, where, where are these forward facing um, yeah, generations? Where do they sit within all this? Like, do they have different expectations? Uh, you know, that's um, <laughs> oh, just a small, just Sorry. a small thing Sorry. to drop in there, Patrick. Let's have a wee look. Absolutely uh, bombing there, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, my my understanding is probably less from you know library worth of research and more from uh, exposure. Here, I have three young Gen Zers in my family. Uh, all of whom are now young adults. There you go. They're all grown up. You'd think after 18 years, they don't need you anymore. I get parole, but no, they still need me. Got all um, to <laughs> <laughs> um, so I observe how they are. And I think that, you know, what you said is absolutely accurate. I do sometimes my younger son is very, very whiz on all the tech. And even between the gap to my oldest and my youngest is eight years. And the oldest observes that even in that time, the behaviour, the assumption of tech and the ability with tech from being very tiny, like it's just an extension of learning to read and write or play music or whatever. It's just part of in that time that's changed. So, yes, there are different experiences and yes, there are different sort of demands. But bear in mind, that's also the generation that in their most critical parts of forming and growing up, all the things that older generations might assume are what you do were not allowed for them. They couldn't, there was no chance of them going out and getting a wee bit over drunk at the pub because there was no pub. They couldn't go out and they couldn't be with their friends. So their ability to make a load of noise with headphones shouting on gaming probably kept their sociability going in a really valuable way. But they didn't have the access through those critical years of learning how to form sociability. So I do wonder whether part of the desire to get back and be in in situ is you know they're kind of they're missing something they want they want to know what that is and probably from the age group that I my own family covers a very small sample but it's those those young people who've been through sort of GCSEs the A levels the university years where also you're forming yourself as a person you're forming yourself through those challenges. So they didn't sit exams. They were sitting exams here on the screen. They didn't um, have the intense camaraderie of hanging around before or hanging around after um, exams. Uh, so they were trying to support each other in different ways. So I think there's almost like a mystery for them about what that experience would be. So first of all, just bearing in mind, then of course, not all of one generation is the same. And this is the complexity of belonging. You can stick a label, um, you know, the label of your generation, the label of your gender, whatever label you choose as your gender, the label of your heritage and background, the label of anything. You can stick your label. You can present a label by having an accent or having an attitude, you know, but we don't only have one label. So uh, someone who might be Gen Z isn't only Gen Z. So organisations will not help their younger, newer employees or attract them by only seeing them as Gen Z. So I think there's there's a complexity in it. Culture's complicated and messy. And being able to recognise that there are different things and different needs. One of the things, of course, is that individuality. Room to express individuality and room for autonomy in the choices that you make and in the way that you run your work. That opens up a whole other thing. Yeah, 
Interesting. Um, and when you look at obviously having this workforce, multi-generational workforce, but also is a without the box ticking exercises, all individual people, thousands of different mm. persons with different needs and different requirements. But predominantly, as per our research, looking at, at that a hybrid being the, the, the most common model nowadays. Yes. Um, between one two days in, in, in the office per week. How do you replicate? I and mean, we obviously you've just gone through, you know, how many how organisations get it wrong. Here are our values, now stick to them. You know, all <laughs> that. Um, how do you replicate or and cultivate using your analogy with the petri with the petri yeah. petri dish? How do you cultivate that? Um, that sense of belonging and that positive workplace culture, um, the employer, employee, and also manager employee experience when when 80% of the work's done, um, you know, with your with your you know your personal belongings behind you when you're at home. How, yeah. how do you how do you manage that? You know, because we've we've changed so quickly since the pandemic, really, our working attitudes and you know that the they're sticking. So how, how do organisations get that so that people aren't looking to move on in 12 months in their jobs and they feel yeah. that organisation? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting one. Um, and actually very telling, one of the organisations I worked with, which was a, a, a sort of financial-ish institution, um, had found that on one of their graduate trainee schemes within a particular division, every single one of them left within the first 12 months and didn't make it to this, the, the second of the two years that they were meant to because they did not feel that they had that individuality. Massive hit. Um, and I think what you've just said is part of the answer. You said about employer to employee, recognising that there were individuals and manager to employee. It's the, It's a really delicate balance between me and us and the individual and the collective so I think that that it's managing that delicate balance and I think that balance has changed a little bit has become slightly more individualized but equally for someone joining employee uh, as a sort of younger person recognizing what an organization is <laughs> and how do you fit in how do I fit in so I think with cultivating belonging Often it's not just the here's all about us and here's what it means for you. I think that's mm. too lumpy. I think it's always encouraging what does it mean for all of us? How does this join up? So I think belonging is, is sort of in the in-between. It's in the in-between of people rather than it's all in individuals. It's, it's the, in the in-between and in the joining up. And a lot of the hard work really falls on managers' shoulders. And I don't think enough has been done to demonstrate to managers how to do that. Mm. So uh, in terms of how to cultivate belonging, uh, if we've, again, sort of the bigger picture is what makes us different as, as, as a species, as human beings? And maybe there are a few things, but I think the trick around all of this and the reason belonging is so important because it's actually a primal human need. It's been identified a long time ago by psychologists as being an absolutely primal need to belong, to be part of something bigger than just ourselves and not to just be ego, I, me on my own. Um, it is about the giving to something bigger. And I think it's cooperation. So I, I see cooperation as being our human superpower. 
our ability to cooperate with each other, to share resources, to and ideally fairly, you know, the word equity is becoming enormously loaded over these last three, four years, um, to share ideas, uh, to share effort by working together, we can get further faster. So if you think of cooperation and then we think of a whole load of other co-words, you start to open out and think, oh, OK, so that's how it works. Oh, that's how this human thing works, this employer, employee, manager, team. And it's all in the joining up. So the co, which is represents our joining up, communication, you know, your word, simply communicate, uh, cooperation, compassion. For leaders and managers to have compassion for what's happening for everybody individually and for everybody sitting in their home feeling very irritated to have compassion for the manager who's dealing with 100 or 500 or several thousand people who are all going through a tough time. Um, it, there are so many co-words you start to sort of think of them on a bus. Oh, yeah. um, but one of the other co-words is conflict and we yeah. are unfortunately in our belonging we're quite geared we can get together and cooperate and cohere another one in order to go into conflict with something else so if our tribalism is too small and if in an organization your mini tribes are too tight and separate you will get too much internal conflict and that ability to cooperate and cohere and get further faster together slips but equally it's all about maintaining our motivation so the three words that I've particularly been looking at within these co-words are connected, compassion and confidence. I think confidence points back to trust as well. So the connection. If you can properly get the overlap between hybrid work, you may well have the best of both worlds, because for a lot of people, they do prefer to work and retreat to some quiet um, to get on with tasks or to really dig deep on their research or their creative work and then to come back. For some people, their work requires always frontline. There is no retreat. They're always frontline. So it's sort of thinking about what is the level of connectedness that's going to be appropriate. And for managers and leaders to think, where have we got the various interactions? So. A way I sometimes think about it is if you think about like a kind of like a radar or a rainbow diagram, there's me in the middle. Here's me <laughs> for any of your individuals. Um, and then you've got your very immediate team and we're really clever at organising ourselves in our immediate team. We cooperate intuitively. We do not need a leader up to about, well, you know, six, eight, ten. That might be your most immediate team up to 12, which conveniently is the size of a jury. We yeah. are designed, human beings are designed to operate very fast and very intuitively together. And you build that up. That's why that camaraderie that we have is such a powerful force. It's really important. Yeah. But it's not enough on its own because on its own, that's the dark side. We retreat into a tight, small time. Yeah. We put a ring fence around us. And everybody outside it is them. We are we and they are them. So organisations yeah. have to stretch that belonging out to the further realms of this radar. So it's not just my immediate team. It's not even just my department. You know, I'm HR, I'm IT, I'm back office, whatever that might be. I'm warehouse. Um, and you'll hear some of this. Oh, they're always doing that. Yeah. 
alarm bells should be going off to any manager hearing that. Yeah, we've all we've all heard it, and we've probably, yeah. if all honest, we've all been a little bit guilty of it. I'm sure in the past. Yeah. But so for that. leaders and managers, it's thinking about the joining up all the ways, even locations. I'm Southampton. I'm New York. I'm East Asia. I'm um, EMEA. I'm South Pacific. I'm whatever. You know, then the whole. And that can be with a very large global organisation that can be really hard to identify with and to be part of. But that's the work. That's the work on cultivating belonging is what is the joining up? And where I've worked on things, say, in engineering or in transport, which are really high safety risk organisations or um, or doing work with, with, with banks. I, did, I had a really interesting time last year in house with Nomura, a Japanese bank which works around the globe. And, you know, you'd move through the time zones, moving through your working day with very different cultures around, but all carrying the thread of this work and that fiduciary trust. So a different kind of risk from an engineering safety risk, but a really assiduous care over how do we join all this up? That's where the real work on cultivating belonging happens. How do you make sure that you're aware in your team as a manager uh, everybody in your team is aware of the impact they have from their work on someone two or three steps away in different parts of this radar diagram where the, you know, the radar beam is far away. What's the impact of the work that you do? And what are the things that you maybe are just keen to just get rid of this, get it out quickly? What are the things that could have a longer term benefit if it was handled differently or perhaps a risk if it was handled differently? So it takes time. And sometimes the work that I'm doing is taking those managers away and out and above of everything they're doing every day to just kind of be aware of that and almost like mapping that out. What are the what are the joining ups? How do we make the connections? And then sometimes it takes just a little bit of care. Like mm. tiny. So uh, when I prepped this interview, I didn't actually think about cultural nuances, but of course, um, as someone married to someone who is Japanese and having lived in Japan, I understand that the cultural nuances are very different from working working wise to to those working in, let's say, mainland Europe or the UK. That's one area that, yeah, is really, yeah, I'll probably another another interview time to explore a bit deeper. <laughs> Isabel, um, I want to go back to trust and conflict. Now you talked mm -hmm. about corrosive conflict earlier. Now I think that I want to talk about healthy conflict. So where that you can get healthy, how do you, obviously we all know healthy conflict is good for business. You're not doing echo chamber activities. You're, you're feeling um, so confident enough to challenge whatever needs to be challenged, you know, in a, in a, in a conducive environment. So how do you get it where that you go from corrosive conflict to healthy conflict? How do you get that within an organization? Because it's critical. And I'm guessing the key word is, is again, going back to belonging and trust. Um, so how do you get there? That's such a lovely insight, Patrick. Thank you. I think that's a really, really good question. Healthy conflict. It may well be the challenge for our age. How do we disagree effectively? Because if you have an environment, a culture in which people can disagree effectively and fast, you are likely to have a more productive organisation. Where we've got to, and we see this in lots of aspects, not just in business, we certainly see it in our own politics here, we see it in worse extremes around the world, and we see it in actual war conflict that's just alarming how quickly, once we are polarised, 
we can't really address that conflict other than with more conflict. It's actually very, very hard. So having the skills to host a difficult conversation, having the environment in which there is permission to speak up because being able to uh, the, the phrase psychological safety has certainly become one of the buzz terms, but it is important that you can speak up, that you can raise a concern, that you can say, I, I, this is not OK, or I'm not sure if this is OK, being able to raise doubt. So having healthy conflict is absolutely a critical part of belonging. It, it may well be a very good hallmark. I think that's a really nice insight, actually, Patrick. Um, the, how to do it. There's a really interesting podcast at the moment between two politicians or sort of ex, not so much practicing now, Alistair Campbell and um, Rory Stewart. Thank you. Pauses yeah. while he's, just, you know, I can, and Rory Stewart. So Rory Stewart was uh, a, a, a long-standing Tory MP and minister, and Alistair Campbell famously was the uh, colourful language, outspoken comms director um, for Tony Blair. Anyway, so they have a very interesting podcast where they'll take a current theme of a week or something that's happened and they'll examine it from their very different political perspectives. And they'll sometimes wrestle it out or sometimes they're slightly embarrassed and bewildered that they find themselves agreeing. But they have created uh, uh, they have created an environment in which that can happen. Um, it's practice, but it's one of the skills that. Uh, I've certainly found I've been teaching. It, it came from the safety work. It came from and from ethics, work in ethics. It became very, very important around that. If you're going to create a culture of ethics or a, a, a sort of a, a, a place where the habits that define your culture are the kind of habits that allow you to bring stuff up quickly and directly and that that's you have permission and you have encouragement. Uh, you have to have the phrasing, you have to have the language around which to do that. So uh, those, a lot of those things are in comms, actually. They do actually sit to some degree, creating that sits within certainly not just the support work, but the lead work of comms. But I do think, again, this is one of those middle management things, training and enabling people in how to. So one of the very quick, here's a free tip. One of the very quick tips, and I did this, I've done this with a few companies. Um, sometimes it's to do with safety or risk. Sometimes it's to do with innovation where something's gone wrong and they want to be innovative. And the idea of an innovative culture is where lots of wonderful, sparky things happen all the time. Actually, the hallmark of innovative culture is that failure happens and you learn from it. That is the thing. It's having the return on failure. So that was a phrase I wanted to get when I was working on innovation culture. What's your return on failure? So if you just keep failing and it all goes awful and everybody's really embarrassed, you've got no return at all. Um, what does a manager generally say? Here's a good question. What is the general response? If something goes wrong, does a manager say who did that? And I, in one organization, trained managers to say, how did that happen? Mm. So if you go from who to how, and that's a tiny thing, it's a very, very small thing. You are creating the confidence within which people can say, this has gone wrong or stop. 
you know, because th that's the other thing when things go wrong, if people feel they can't say that something has gone wrong, it gets worse and mm. creates a much bigger impact. So being able to disagree, even in that sense of saying, no, that's wrong. And there are lots of famous stories in really critical circumstances where the ability to disagree with someone across hierarchy became uh, the saving grace. And then that became a hallmark of culture that you have that permission, not just to disagree actively, but to disagree with someone much higher up than you. And that yeah. the higher up would say, OK, I hear you. That's interesting. And either. Great. Yes, that is a really good insight. We missed that. Or ah, it's not obvious, but the reason that happens is. So yeah. you always think you, you, you need to have those very lively, direct conversations. But you are right. Permission to disagree and permission for healthy conflict. I think that's a really good hallmark, actually. John, it's interesting. This is a personal example uh, in a previous role where um, where everything had to always be positive. And, uh, you know, uh, I was one phrase I used to hate it. Uh, don't come with the questions, come with solutions. I mean, that's that's great. But, you know, but thank you. Um, and yeah, that, and um, I would not fit all the figures. I would look at the figures that were good and put them in the report. Uh, and the ones that didn't look so good, I would um, ignore them and uh, pretend they never existed um, because I knew I could get away with it. Or more importantly, if I did highlight there was a problem, uh, it might not be me that gets in trouble. It might be one of my team members or something. Um, and it wouldn't be any of our fault. Now, it's simply it's the other way around. I'm constantly looking for ways that we can be improving and never yes. satisfied because we've got the culture here of continuous improvement and of, you know, actually holding your hand up and saying, didn't go right, X and Y, here's Y and Z, this is what we're going to do next time. Uh, learnings, you know, it's, it's really basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we never had that. It was a constant revolving door con um, company. It wasn't even one of my previous roles in a scary um, publisher. Um, so uh, you know, where where that that really is quite scary. But it wasn't even that. Um, it was you know, without going into too many details, it was yeah, it should have been. We just never had that open, um, yeah, that kind of open door policy to actually properly look at, at color coding where we were at, and and so then you find you have a bigger problem in six months time because you've been hiding bits and pieces so it's just interesting um i love that failure happens and you learn from it and you, you do um so finally uh i want to just look at well finally for me but i'm sure there's more you want to probably go through as well but i want to look at reciprocation and balance we're talking about um we're talking about uh, trust and we're talking about belonging and it's not a one-way no. System. So it needs to work both ways. Now, if you ask an employee, how do I want to be um, trusted and, um, you know, uh, then, of course, most people will be sensible in that. But you'll get people going, well, I want to have my frappuccino on a Monday morning and, you know, uh, and I want to start a bit later, even though there's a company meeting there. But I don't want to do that because that's not my Monday. That's not how I work, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's obviously got to be a reciprocation in place where there's mutual respect, mutual understanding. And and a mutual sense of yeah that this is working again the employee yep. employer relationship are we currently obviously it's a bit of, it's a bit of an open ended question you know obviously it varies between organisations are we in a good place at the moment with this um, you know is it about the right balance the employee employer kind of uh, yeah what what would you say 
I think that's another very, very good insight. I don't think we are. I'm concerned that what may have happened in the freneticism to get stuff working at all and good stuff has happened. And there are organisations that have done amazing work um, to get hybrid going or new ways of working. But because so much has happened in the world around them, it's been like constant actions on an emergency circumstance. I don't think the proper considered view of what has happened to that relationship between an employer and employee, all those many layers, the complicated many layers of belonging and how the things all fit together and what's joining up. I think a lot of work has become transactional, not relationship. And that is death to a healthy culture, culture because all it is is doing stuff and almost the measures around it. This is what I've seen in quite a lot of the organisations I've worked with, that the measures around it have become entirely about tick box transaction of task. And then if an individualised approach says, well, I want my frappuccino on a Monday and I do things this way, then as many individuals as you have in the business, as many people who say me, you know, so if you've got a company of eight me's or 100 me's or 10,000 or 200,000, that's all disconnected. You are far less than the sum of your parts and you are not revolving around cooperation. I think that the danger there becomes enormous, not only that, you know, obviously there are various areas of risk that can happen in those gaps, but what's not happening is things like innovation. What's not happening is looking after customers. What's not happening is seeing ahead planning. So regathering around shared purpose and shared values, which I know have become. Yeah, I need to be a bit careful about how I phrase it, because that's become a buzz thing in itself. That's become like oh, a whole industry. Um, but genuinely feeling motivated to be part of something. Does it matter to you to belong to that thing? If it matters to belong and you do the right thing, you know, if you do the right thing because your code of conduct tells you to, that you have to, yeah, do the right thing. Um, but if you do the right thing because you want to, yeah, then you're more likely to have a bigger motivation in. Another aspect of healthy conflict is the willingness for compromise. It's not just the ability, but the willingness. And we see an awful lot of public figures saying, well, you know, I'm a strong, independent person. And what they're describing really is brittleness. I put a brittle boundary around myself and I will never change that because that would be inauthentic and it would be, you know, whereas actually belonging and working with a community or an organisation or a school or a a nation or in any of our layers of belonging, it essentially does mean there's some compromise. So what's your willingness to do that? I actually did have a conversation in one organisation about finding that in recruitment, finding the willingness. So strong characters, strong, capable. Yes, we need people who are more independent. We need much more independent working. We need that. That's fine. We need to have the room for autonomy. Managers need to know where to let go. Like, here are the things that need to be done. You work it out. Within this time, you work it out. You want your Monday frappuccino, off you go. Fine, no worries. But here, here and here, we come together. And that, yeah. may, that might require compromise in your world. How far are you willing to do that? I think those things become 
uh, a more vital part of a modern culture and a future culture and they need to be conscious and then what we haven't talked about maybe is another one is the whole thing about appreciation and that's mutual you use the word mutual a while back that's mutual we have a mutual responsibility for our organization that's stewardship isn't it but yeah. we have a mutual responsibility i think for appreciating so even the throwaway the casual the thing that doesn't cost any bonus but saying thank you yeah. that may be the thing that gets which is why of the co-words i feel compassion is a very important one but the confidence the thing that gives us confidence the thing that gives us confidence isn't and, and the thing that becomes trustworthiness isn't just saying the positive but my gen zers keep telling me that's just toxic positivity mom <laughs> you know like always saying come along it's going to be lovely everybody up oh for god's sake it worked when we were five um, you know, <laughs> um and i know i know i don't mean to demean either my family or the place of work but it's incredibly dangerous um so with one organization i went through a hefty thing with their leader who was talking about you know a big shift and pulling everybody together and he'd done this great sort of rousing speech and i said sorry mate but you need to delete all hope and he sort of looked at me like you know i was sort of bringing some you know what witchcraft is this that you're telling me to lose any kind of optimism no 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 literally as a communicator the word hope as soon as you say i hope this strategy is going to get us well yeah. bloody hope so you introduce <laughs> doubt every yeah. time you say hope you introduce doubt. so even the language that we use to create that sense of confidence around us but i think that in the interactions it's all the time moving, not just from a dependent culture of them. We can't have that. It's not an independent culture of me. That won't work because you've got as many me's, you know, all separate. It's an interdependent. But the hard, the hard bit is the interdependence. How do we create us in a way that allows us as individuals to flourish? You know, we're not Borg. Uh, we are individuals and and how do we do that in a in a culture and that's why ultimately then whose responsibility is this culture whose responsibility is it to cultivate belonging yes it's the chief exec yes it's the board yes it's managers but unless we all feel it's our shared responsibility and there's that give and take and that we have that right we have not just a responsibility but a right to expect that environment and therefore we commit to bringing that into our environment i worry that there are time bombs all over the place of short-term fixes that are basically transactional and not relationship and not really about cooperation yeah it's really interesting i i, I love some of the phrases there interdependent um yeah um aspects and it's something that I've been struggling with and I just think sometimes I'm a bit of a dinosaur myself because I did come from um, I'm far too young to be a dinosaur no, I, was, I was brought up by so deadline driven that you lose your job if you don't hit the deadline it's as simple as that it was you know, monthly magazines and then I went to a, you know work for a high driven high turnover publisher in the Middle East and if you missed your deadline you, you know you wouldn't you couldn't I couldn't go to who was an excellent manager and unless there was something seriously wrong with me, you know, physically or, or mentally, unless there was something properly wrong, 
I couldn't go to him. Oh, I'm struggling with my deadline. Uh, can you help? It would be, and you know, this is someone I respected. It would be like, well, get out the door. You're no use to us. <laughs> Next on the conveyor belt. So now, and now, obviously, times that was nearly ten years ago. Times have changed. So I always just kind of try. I have to fact check myself with the MD. Like, you know, am I being too hard? Am I being too soft? It's all a learning. And I, yeah, I'm 30, 35 this month. So I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm relatively young in my career, but. Um, you know, I feel like I've been through three generations already um, and it's, <laughs> everything's changing. And, and again, it goes back to the Petri dish, not only of culture and belonging, but, uh, you know, ESG was something I never heard of when I started my mm. career. Like mm. So the world around has changed as well. But um, as well, I think that any podcast that has a Star Trek reference is one I'm a very big fan of. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Okay, so we've tackled the employer-employee relationship. We've delved, in, delved into the psychology of trust and had a good chuckle along the way. Well, no, it's what a joy. I hope you can make something out of it somewhere. Thanks, Isabel.